In 2012, a Winnipeg woman was ambushed as she walked to her car. Witnesses came to her aid and provided the police with the description of the man who attacked her. One of his friends would later come forward with what he knew, but then the Crown had to battle a little thing we call hearsay. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines and day six of the 12 days of Crime Lines. We are at the halfway mark of the daily episodes. So let's get into today's case, which centers on a woman named Kayla Tran. Kayla was born in May 1986, and she was one of four girls. She had a lot of energy and was always upbeat and positive. She used that personality to excel when she volunteered in the community when she worked as a concert promoter, and then later as a business relationship manager at a telecommunications company. In 2012, 26-year-old Kayla was living in Winnipeg with her 27-year-old boyfriend, Drake Moslenko. He was a bouncer at a nightclub. Drake had bigger aspirations than working security for the rest of his life. He had previously played amateur baseball for a few years before he moved on to his dreams of becoming a rapper. There have been allegations that Drake was involved with selling drugs, but if he was, Kayla had no involvement and likely no knowledge of it. It seems that Kayla's stable job was what kept them afloat financially. The two had been together for about four years by the summer of 2012, but the relationship was on the rocks. According to Kayla's family, she had recently found out that Drake had cheated on her, and they were headed towards a complete breakup. Kayla talked about moving to Alberta for a new start without Drake. On the morning of June 20th, 2012, Kayla left her Winnipeg apartment to head out to work around 7 in the morning. As she approached her car, a man came out of what seemed like nowhere. Kayla yelled, according to witnesses, leave me alone, and then she started screaming for help. Neighbors looked out and saw a man attacking a woman. So they did what Kayla had hoped. They ran over to help, and they were yelling at the attacker. When he realized that there were people around, this man took off running. One neighbor hopped on a bike and tried to catch up with him, but he couldn't find him, and he got away. Another neighbor, a nurse named Tracy, ran to Kayla and tried to render first aid. Tracy said Kayla was so covered in blood on her neck that she couldn't check for a pulse there, but she did find a faint one on her wrist. Kayla had been stabbed around 30 times, with two slashes to her neck being fatal. Before first responders arrived, Drake, Kayla's boyfriend, came out to the parking lot and broke down when he saw Kayla. He crouched by her side and held her hand, sobbing, as they waited for help. Though it took the ambulance only six minutes to arrive, it was already too late, and Kayla was dead in what was a frenzied and senseless attack. And by senseless, I mean there was no apparent motive. Kayla's purse was there and her cell phone was on the ground next to her. Her wallet was missing, but it was later found in her apartment, so robbery was ruled out as a motive. 
Over 30 stab wounds and cuts is overkill. It seemed like much more than a robber would do during the day in the middle of the week. This seemed targeted to the investigators. But the neighbors worried it was a random attack. While Kayla lived in a nice area with low crime, gang violence has been an issue in Winnipeg for decades. Winnipeg is a city that was once prosperous, but it has taken a downturn over the last century. The start of the decline can actually be traced back to the Panama Canal being opened. Winnipeg had benefited from the trains that ran across the country, connecting the Atlantic side with the Pacific side for the benefits of international trade. But when the canal was open, the reliance on the railroad for shipping decreased. Winnipeg was then hit very hard during the 80s recession, and they've dealt with other issues like devastating floods that have made an economic recovery very difficult. Economic difficulties, unemployment, lack of community resources, all of these things contribute to an increase in drug and gang activity, something Winnipeg unfortunately knows too well. The street gangs of Winnipeg are often making headlines, particularly after 1995, when a 13-year-old boy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time was shot to death for no reason. And now here was an instance of a woman with no ties to gangs who worked hard and lived in a nice area with a typical lifestyle being killed in a parking lot. Was this evidence of the gang activity spilling over into the quote-unquote nice parts of town? It wasn't until the day after the murder that the police announced they did not believe there was an ongoing threat to the community and they believed the attack on Kayla was targeted. While that did calm some fears, it didn't shake everyone's beliefs or worry that this was gang-involved. The police did have a description of the killer thanks to the neighbors who ran towards the screaming to try to help Kayla. The man appeared to be in his early 20s, and he had a slim build. He had an olive complexion and short, dark hair. This description was put out to the media. It was only a few days before a key witness was interviewed by the police. It has not been confirmed how Tremaine Sam Kelly found himself sitting across from the police just days after the murder, but there is some indication he may have come forward himself. He said he knew what happened to Kayla because he was there, and he knew why it happened. But most importantly, he knew who did it, 20-year-old Trayvon Willis. To understand the pieces of the story Tremaine had, we do have to back up a bit and talk about Trayvon, who went by Trey. Trey started selling drugs at some point after he left school and got himself in under a dealer named Derek Bennett, who used the street name Finale. While it was small-time stuff to begin with, Trey eventually started doing some larger jobs, like moving cocaine north from Winnipeg to the Paw, which is a six-and-a-half-hour drive each way. In February 2012, Trey was doing a run when he got pulled over. The police arrested him after finding him with some of the cocaine 
as well as pills, which they, of course, confiscated. This was Trey's first arrest, so he was granted bail. When he got back to Winnipeg, he learned that Derek, the dealer, expected him to pay back the amount that had gotten seized. It's reported that it was three ounces that had been seized, and now I have how much does an ounce of cocaine cost in my Google search history. It looks like the amount that had been seized would have been worth anywhere between three and $6,000, depending on the purity, which would be four to $9,000 in Canadian money. Apparently, Trey told people the amount he owed was double that. Derek told Trey that he could pay back the value of the cocaine by continuing to sell drugs for him, for which Derek would keep most or all of Trey's usual cut. And that is one of the many ways people get trapped in drug trafficking. It's not unique for a debt, whether real or imagined, to force someone to stay in a situation like this. Derek started putting increased pressure on Trey, saying he wasn't paying the debt off quickly enough. He would threaten Trey and eventually sent some people around to beat Trey up in May 2012. Trey talked about this situation often enough that he had multiple friends and family members tell him to go to the police. He had already been arrested for drug trafficking, and his life was already at risk. What did he have to lose here? He could offer the police the bigger dealer up in the chain, which might not just get him protection, but also a deal in his own criminal case. But Trey wouldn't do it. According to Trey, he got a text in mid-June 2012 that included the addresses of two of his family members, which Trey took as a threat against them. He knew he needed to figure out how to get the money quickly. Trey went to his friend Tremaine and, according to Tremaine, said that he figured out how to get the money. He said a friend of his had offered him money if he would kill his girlfriend. The man was, according to Trey, Drake Maslenko, and the target was Kayla Tran. As for why Drake said he wanted Kayla killed, it was supposedly because he believed she was informing on him to the police. Trey said Drake gave him information about Kayla's daily habits, saying that the easiest time to get to her would be when she was leaving for work. Trey could then steal her purse and her car, making it look like a robbery gone wrong. Drake would then sell the car and get money out from the cards to pay Trey, which he could then in turn use to pay his debt. Trey told Tremaine that he was going to take Drake up on the offer, and Tremaine offered to go with him to the murder for moral support. Moral support? Those are his words, not mine because I would call this amoral support, since he was going to support his friend killing a woman for pay. On June 19th, Trey and Tremaine took the bus out to the apartment complex. 
They found Kayla's car, and then Trey went to a different area to change his clothes. He then covered his face with a bandana, put on gloves, and pulled out a knife. By the time he did all of this, Kayla had gotten into her car and drove off without Trey even noticing. Trey and Tremaine left by bus and discussed that maybe this was a sign that Trey should not go through with it. They talked about some other ways he could get the money to pay off the drug dealer, but none of them seemed to be as sure of a thing as this murder for hire. So the next day, the two went back to the apartment complex to wait for Kayla again. This time, Trey saw Kayla leave her apartment, and he approached her as she was getting into her car. He stabbed her as many times as he could before the neighbors came to her aid. He then had to abandon the plans to steal anything, and he took off running. He ran past where Tremaine was waiting for him and told him to run. The two took off in separate directions. Trey was clear of the neighbor who had tried to chase him down on the bike. Then he threw the murder weapon into the river, dropped his jacket and backpack, and went to the bus stop. He got on the bus at 7.38 a.m. And thanks to footage from inside the buses and cabs, the police were able to confirm some of what Tremaine said happened, at least the parts about how they got to and from the murder scene. The two got on a bus around 6 a.m. and sat in the back. They then got off the bus around 6.30 and took a cab until they were dropped off about 15 minutes later near Kayla's apartment. Then at 7.38, Trey hopped back on the bus by himself since he and Tremaine had split up at this point. Trey was seen wearing a jacket and carrying his backpack in the footage before the murder, but then when he got on the bus alone after Tremaine said they got separated, he no longer had the jacket or the backpack. After Tremaine made his statement, a warrant was issued for Trey's arrest five days after Kayla's murder. The police couldn't immediately find him, but they did get lucky the next day. On June 26th, they responded to a home in Winnipeg on some unrelated matter, and that's when they found Trey inside. He was intoxicated and was arrested without incident. Trey was taken to the station, and he spoke with his attorney twice before he was interviewed the next morning at 8.45. And maybe you could call this an interview, or maybe you could call it an hour and a half of pressure by the police and nothing from Trey. So this was a bit of a one-way conversation as he maintained his right to remain silent. The investigators told Trey that they believed he was a hired hitman, saying that they knew what happened, but not why. Then the real pressure came as they pulled out pictures of Kayla's body, telling him to look at what he did. They said they hoped he enjoyed his last week of life since he wouldn't be free again for 25 years. And then they brought up his mother, who had died when he was just seven. They said Trey's family got to say goodbye to her, but Kayla's family didn't have that moment with her, and his mother would be disappointed in him for what he did. The only response they got out of Trey was him putting his head on the table and asserting his right to remain silent at least a dozen times. 
So the police took a break, and then five hours later, they took another shot at questioning him. They told him that he was going to be charged with first-degree murder, and he didn't need to go down for this alone. They knew he didn't wake up one morning and decide to kill Kayla Tran. He was hired to do it. The hope was not just to get Trey to confess, but also to implicate Drake as well. But no matter how high they turned up the pressure, Trey just refused to speak. He asked to speak to his attorney again. The police then pelted him with about a dozen more questions before they stopped. A few hours after this, they tried once again. At this point, it was a little after 7 p.m. About a half hour into this third attempt, Trey confessed. He admitted that someone had told him they would pay off his drug debt if he killed Kayla. He had to do it in order to save himself and his family. They asked who hired him, but he wouldn't say. They pushed, but Trey still refused to name anyone. Using the information they had gotten from Tremaine, they asked him directly if it was Drake. Trey said no, it was not. But he did eventually offer up a name, Derek, the dealer who he owed the money to. They asked Trey why Derek wanted him to kill Kayla, and he said he didn't know, but he did what he felt he needed to. They weren't buying it. They believed Tremaine, and Derek didn't make sense as a mastermind. Even Trey couldn't make up some reason Derek would want Kayla dead. And Trey said he killed Kayla because someone offered to pay off his drug debt if he did. So if it was Derek behind this, why would Derek say he would pay off a debt to himself? Wouldn't Trey have said he would cancel it out or something like that? The way Trey spoke about the person who hired him, it was certainly a third party to this drug debt. But nothing the investigators did convinced Trey to name Drake. A little after midnight, Trey was charged with first-degree murder. And though Trey wouldn't name Drake, they did have Tremaine's statement and used that as cause to arrest Drake and bring him in for questioning. When they questioned Drake, he was asked if he knew Trey. He said yes, but just as an acquaintance. They asked about Kayla's murder, and Drake denied having anything to do with it at all. The investigators pulled out some phone records and confronted Drake with them. For just being acquaintances, Drake and Trey talked quite a bit. On May 14th alone, they called each other seven times. On June 10th, they talked on the phone twice. And the day after the murder, a bit after midnight, Drake called Trey or they assumed he called Trey. The call was from Drake's father's phone. Drake did admit the call after the murder was him using his father's phone, but he said he had a good reason to call Trey. He heard the description of the killer that the witnesses had given, and it sounded a whole lot like Trey. Drake called him to confront him about it, and Trey denied that he killed Kayla. Though Trey did not implicate him and the interrogation got little information from Drake, he was charged with first-degree murder. Tremaine's statement remained the strongest evidence against Drake, but there was a major issue with it. Tremaine said that Trey said that Drake said that he would pay off the debt if Trey killed Kayla. Tremaine heard nothing from Drake firsthand. His testimony almost surely would not be allowed in against Drake. Against Trey for sure, but not Drake. 
So the police tried to shore up their case that Drake was behind this. They found out that he had a conviction from two years before the murder when he and two friends staged a robbery at a hotel. An employee stole over $5,000, gave it to another friend, and then reported this as a robbery. Drake was the getaway driver, and he was given three months probation. While this was not a violent crime like a murder, it was the staging of a crime for financial gain. And that's what the police believed happened with Kayla's murder. And the financial gain? That was life insurance. A few days after Kayla's death, Drake reached out to her sister, Tiffany. He was named on two of Kayla's life insurance policies alongside some of Kayla's family members. But when he tried to claim the benefits, they wouldn't let him since he was not immediate family. He needed Tiffany to go with him to fill out the paperwork. Tiffany found this entire thing suspect because she knew Kayla and Drake were in the process of breaking up at the time of her death due to his cheating. So while Drake was a beneficiary, that was out of date. When you're breaking up with someone you've been with for four years and live with, there are a lot of things to take care of, like settling any joint debts, fulfilling the lease on the apartment, and changing paperwork like life insurance policies. But when you're 26 years old, is changing the beneficiary on your life insurance policy at the top of your to-do list during a breakup? Probably not. It looked like Kayla just hadn't gotten around to it yet, and here Drake was, ready to file for the insurance payout within a couple of days of the murder. The evidence the police had was enough to keep Drake locked up for a couple of months on the first-degree murder charge, but not any longer than that. While the Crown did not drop the charges, they did not object to Drake's defense's request that he be given bail. It is practically unheard of for someone charged with first-degree murder to get bail, let alone without any objection from the Crown. But Drake was bonded out in August 2012. The case against Drake was thin, to say the least, since Trey did not back up Tremaine's story on who ordered the hit. The only thing they had, other than suspicion, was that a witness thought they saw Drake reach into the car at the murder scene, and the Crown believed he did this to take Kayla's wallet, to still make it look like a robbery gone wrong. He put the wallet in the apartment, which is where the police found it when they searched. But on the other side of this, they also had several witnesses at the crime scene who said Drake was distraught while Kayla was on the ground, and after she left in the ambulance. That didn't match the view of a man who coldly tried to stage a robbery in front of multiple witnesses. The lack of hard evidence was the main reason Drake was given bail, though he was placed under bond restrictions. Two years later, the charges against Drake were stayed and the restrictions lifted for the same reason, lack of evidence. A judge was not persuaded by the case against Drake. The judge found that the theory Drake hid the wallet from the car in the apartment didn't make sense since he consented to the search. Why would he take the wallet, put it in the apartment, and then let the police search where they could easily find it? 
he had time to have stashed it elsewhere. It made just as much sense that Kayla had simply forgotten it on her way out the door. But the real blow to the case was what I mentioned before, Tremaine's statement. It was hearsay, and the judge, as predicted, ruled it inadmissible. Once the judge ruled that the Crown had to stay the proceedings because they weren't ready to move forward to trial. A stay is like a pause button on the legal proceedings. It let Drake get back to his life with his bond restrictions lifted while the Crown tried to find more evidence. But this pause isn't indefinite. They had one year to either pick the case back up where they left off or drop the charges. And before that year was up, Trayvon Willis went to trial in the spring of 2015. I'm sure there was some hope that this trial would bring out additional evidence that could be used against Drake. Trey's defense team indicated they wanted to argue a defense of duress, and I initially thought this meant his confession, that he confessed while under duress. But that is not what it was. They wanted to argue that Trey was under duress at the time he committed the murder due to the threats against himself and his family. This is an allowable defense in both Canada and the U.S., and the rules around it vary between jurisdictions. So let me give you an example first to explain what this defense is, and I'm going to steal the plot pretty much every crime TV show uses within the first three seasons. A criminal breaks into your home and holds your family hostage and forces you to go to a bank and rob it. You robbed a bank, which is illegal, and you can be charged for it. But you could argue the defense of duress, saying that the amount of duress you were under made your actions morally involuntary. It's an interesting defense, and if anyone knows of any cases that have used it, please email me at crimelinespodcast at gmail.com because I would be interested in seeing how it's applied elsewhere. But for now, we need to stay out of that rabbit hole and just focus on Canada's law since that's where this murder occurred. The issue Trey found with using this defense in Canada was twofold. First, this defense is not allowed in cases where the defendant puts themselves in a situation where they could reasonably predict being subjected to duress. If you're hanging out at home with your family and someone bursts in, ties everybody up, and makes you rob the bank, you couldn't predict yourself in that scenario. But Trey was certainly not sitting at home. He was trafficking drugs for this man. The same person, he said, was placing him under duress. Being threatened by a drug dealer was something he could have reasonably seen coming. The other issue with this is under Canadian restrictions on this defense, this can almost never be used in a murder case. The Canadian courts have been pretty clear that if you decide to kill another person under duress, you've determined that your life has more value than the victim's. It's okay to decide your life or your family's life is more important than the bank's money, But what kind of slippery slope would the courts be in if they started letting people decide that they could sacrifice an innocent person to save their own? 
This wasn't self-defense. If Trey killed Derek, maybe he could argue that. But Kayla was no threat to him. Trey decided that his life was worth more than Kayla's, and that was not something the Canadian courts were going to allow a jury to consider. So after the judge told Trey that he could not use that defense, they then tried to get his confession thrown out, which is pretty standard pretrial motions. The statement was allowed in, but they did have a pretty good argument here. The police picked Trey up and knew he was drunk at the time and had been up all night. They then interviewed him off and on for around 20 hours, and he barely had time to sleep in between. But he did speak to his attorney multiple times, and that definitely went in the Crown's favor. So the trial started in April 2015. Tremaine was the star witness, telling the story as he knew it. They had the footage of Trey and Tremaine on the bus and the taxi together, just like Tremaine said. A constable testified to finding a bloody sneaker and the murder weapon on the bank near the Seine River after a witness came forward saying they saw a backpack dumped in the area, and the backpack had a stained bandana. This backed up the bus footage, showing Trey with a backpack before the murder, and then not having it after. However, there weren't any prints recovered from those items or from the crime scene that matched Trey, and the defense suggested that none of the evidence definitively pointed to him. What if it was Tremaine who committed the murder and came forward so he could toss Trey under the bus before he got caught? The basic description of the killer matched Tremaine almost as well as it matched Trey. A lot of the evidence against Trey applied equally to Tremaine, except for the confession, which was only given after a long, sleep-deprived day of on-and-off questioning. Perhaps Tremaine was the killer and Trey had been the one along for support. The defense did not call any witnesses, delivering their reasonable doubt through cross-examination and their closing statement. There is one part of the Crown's case that really stuck out to me. Reportedly, they played Trey's confession for the jury, but they did not play the very end. They did not play the part where he said it was Derek, this finale guy, that told him to kill Kayla. This left the public with the impression that Trey never named the person who supposedly hired him, but the Crown's theory was that it was Drake, regardless of who he actually named. And I do find it interesting that Trey refused to give Drake's name. You would think he would have tried to cut a deal, maybe shortening his non-parole period, if he rolled over on the person who ordered the hit. Unless, of course, he did do that, and it really was the drug dealer, and the police simply refused to believe him. But no evidence has come forward against this drug dealer, or really a motive identified. The jury got their instructions from the judge on the differences between the possible verdicts. We had not guilty, obviously, first-degree murder, second-degree murder, or manslaughter. After two days of deliberations, they found Trayvon Willis guilty of first-degree murder. When it came time for sentencing, some of Kayla's family read their impact statements, but Trey declined the opportunity to speak. Before announcing the sentence, the judge did have some things to say to Trey. He dismissed Trey's assertion that he had little option but to kill Kayla to save himself. 
He said there was another option. He could have gone to the police. He traded a risk of death to himself for sure death for Kayla Tran. The judge called the killing singularly gruesome and shocking. Trey was then given a sentence of life in prison without parole for 25 years. Some reporting says he will be eligible to apply for early release after 15 years under what is called the Faint Hope Clause. The Faint Hope Clause was a rule that allowed people who would have to serve more than 15 years to apply for parole at 15 years. It was designed to incentivize long-term inmates to work towards rehabilitation and progress with the hope they can prove themselves enough to get out extra early. It's called Faint Hope because it wasn't given out very frequently, but it was something that they could hope for. This rule has since been abolished, and it does not apply to any person serving a life sentence for a murder that occurred after December 2nd, 2011. The source I saw that mentioned this faint hope clause said Trey was eligible because Kayla was killed before the end of the faint hope clause. But from what I'm reading, she was killed several months after it. So maybe I'm missing something, maybe they're missing something. You know, one of us doesn't understand the Canadian legal system and the safe money is on me being the one who doesn't understand it. So Trey will be serving at least 15 to 25 years, but possibly more. After Trey's trial and conviction, which didn't bring out any more evidence against Drake, the charges that had been stayed in his case were dropped. And with the charges being dropped, he was able to collect around $50,000 from one of the life insurance policies. And then he tried to apply for the other policy, which was worth three times that amount. In response, Kayla's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit. The goal was to stop him from profiting from Kayla's murder because regardless of whether or not there was enough to go to trial with it, they believed he was behind her killing. There is normally a two-year deadline to file a civil suit, but they were allowed to move forward with this anyway because the family said they had new evidence against Drake. When they filed the lawsuit, the family alleged there was a second confession from Trey that was not shown at trial. In this one, he does point the finger at Drake. He said he was at a school playground when Drake asked him how he would feel about killing someone. Trey said he didn't plan on killing anyone, but Drake said if he did, he would help him pay off his debts. Trey said that after thinking about it for a little bit, he realized that he could probably get away with the murder his debts would be cleared out, and he could move on. He said they met another time at Trey's apartment, and Drake gave him more details on the who, what, where, and when. Drake suggested ways Trey could kill Kayla, but ultimately left it up to him. Trey said he agreed to do it because Drake was going to give him the money to pay off the drug dealer. In this video, the investigators asked Trey why he initially blamed Derek, the drug dealer, as the mastermind, and Trey said he had hoped the police would just figure it out. Now, there's a big issue with this video. The family said that the Crown prosecutor and the homicide detective told them this video exists, and the family wanted to see it, so part of this case was to compel the Crown to turn over the case file so they could view it themselves. 
However, this video has never been made public, and it seems unclear why. Even if this specific confession was somehow obtained in violation of Trey's rights, and they couldn't use it at trial against him, at least in the U.S., it wouldn't mean they couldn't use it against a third party, since the third party's rights were not violated. In Canada, it may be different, or there may be another reason this confession is not being used. I wonder if it doesn't exactly say what the family was told it said. But in the end, this video would not end up making it into the civil court case either. Drake had first tried to get the wrongful death suit thrown out of court, maintaining his innocence and calling the accusations offensive and baseless. But the court wouldn't toss it, and in April 2019, several months ahead of the scheduled trial date, the parties settled the case. The terms of the settlement, financial or otherwise, have not been made public. Court is incredibly stressful and expensive for everyone involved, so sometimes it's worth settling for part of what you want rather than throw good money after bad chasing your perfect solution. Trey has filed an appeal, and part of it was about the trial court not allowing him to present a defense of duress. But seeing as the law pretty much doesn't ever allow it for murder, he didn't have much of a chance. His appeals have been denied. As for Kayla's family, they know Trayvon Willis did not act alone. He may have been the sole killer, but he was not the driving force, and whether the person ordering the hit on Kayla was Derek or Drake or someone else, in the end, no one else faced the jury. The justice done in this case is incomplete and the person who plotted against Kayla remains free. And the one person who could do the most to change that, Trayvon Willis, has opted to keep his secrets to himself as he serves out his sentence. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.